Welcome to the Being Human podcast, brought to you by Relate Malaysia. Join us in our conversations about what makes us human and why we think and behave in the ways that we do. We'll talk about mental health, emotional well-being, and how we can sometimes feel on top of the world. And other times, like life calls for a large tub of ice cream and a big spoon. So come on in, relax, and let's explore this puzzle of being human together. Hello and welcome to the Being Human podcast. My name is Dr. Chua Sukning, and today I'm joined by Anthea Ong, a former nominated member of parliament for the 13th Parliament of Singapore and currently a full-time entrepreneur and social advocate and the founder of social organizations, including Hefti Bar and A Good Space. Perhaps no one fits the theme of being human more so than Anthea, as she has openly shared the setbacks challenges and difficulties she has encountered in life, and how she has used these experiences to connect and serve with others in deep and meaningful ways through her various patterns. In addition to her entrepreneur and advocacy work, Anthea is an author, having written the book 50 Shades of Love and hosted a podcast, Shades of Love by Anthea Ong. She's also an experienced leadership and executive coach, human-centered leadership speaker and strategy consultant, as well as a yoga and wellness facilitator. Welcome to the Being Human podcast, Anthea. I'm so glad we can give our listeners, a, um, I think, a full understanding of your uh, accomplishment and, and the way oh, you've been dedicated you. to bringing social change in Singapore. Thank you. Thank you. Um, wouldn't really call it accomplishments, but definitely when you have been around the block um, as long as I have, then, you know, I think the number of um, experiences that one gets to um, have an opportunity to be part of um, increases, right? So so you and I um, met a couple of years ago. Um, yeah. And we were introduced by a mutual friend. And I said, I want to do something uh, in mental health in, in Singapore since I was working mm-hmm. there. And, and so we volunteered together. Uh, and SGMHM, Singapore Mental Health Matters. So let, let's start with that. I mean, you you have so many things going on, so many um, social efforts, um, organizations you sit in boards on, uh, just things, you, you always seem busy and doing things. And it seems like you, you have endless passion for so many causes. And that's from the outside. So I don't know, is that the case, Anthea? You know, what's going on? What, what's, what's pushing you, driving you? And wh- where's all these interests coming from? No, it's a great question. Um, first and foremost, I have to say that I don't actually think I'm busy. And in fact, that's a word that I um, very intentionally avoid. Um, I think I think in itself, the word busy um, is generative of an emotion that is um, just overwhelming, right? As if you are on a chase, as if you are just, you know, doing something for others, uh, for other people's goals and aims and objectives. But uh, I don't feel that at all. Uh, I know it sounds, I, and I don't mean this in a facetious way. I really don't. And I think part of that comes from um, a feels like a lifetime of practice, but obviously it's not been. It's been only 16 years since I've gone into a very discipline, intentional practice of meditation, of yoga, you know, and I think that's really helped me to be 
um, completely present with every uh, person or every task that I'm actually involved with that moment. Uh, and, and with that, I think to some extent, it gives me quite a bit of advocacy, um, you know, and 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 maybe that's why it seems like there's um, so much that I'm doing. But but I must see, as you asked, right? I mean, from my um, my lens, I don't actually feel um, that I'm overwhelmed or I'm busy. I mean, there's a lot of um, there's certainly a lot of richness in my life, which I'm very grateful for, right? And and uh, that diversity and that um, that spread, um, if you will, of just very sumptuous spread, actually, of what I could be part of. Um, and it seems very disparate um, to most people looking in, looking from outside, but it's not. Um, they're all connected, actually. And maybe the only person who can connect it would be me, naturally, because it is all very broadly within the mental well-being, um, um, within the sort of the human empowerment realm, right? Uh, because I deeply believe that every person has the right to be able to realize uh, their potential, and um, and that that obviously then would intersectionalize across different communities and groups. But but that's what drives me actually. You know that you know to be able to sort of hold space, um, give voice, to be to be able to sort of um, inspire and lead change. I always say that I only have um, three words when someone asks me what's my purpose. I'll just say to lead change. And then there's a continuation of oh, how do I lead change, right? Um, by example, by you know building bridges and, and communities, and and also by always bringing others along. So yeah, so that's a long way to kind of answer um, your question. But I think from my vantage, I'm very clear what I say no to because it did, I mean obviously it's a broad realm. Um, but when I get invited to things that are maybe not really. <laughs> You know, clearly um, improving the human condition, particularly in mental well-being and uh, human empowerment. Then I say no la. <laughs> um, I guess there are two things that stand out to me. Uh, one is your work and the parliament and the other is your work um, and corporates. So mm. how how did you bring mental mental well-being or mental health into these spaces that are traditionally not friendly uh, mm. towards you know, mental health, you know, it's kind of a taboo word as we know it's highly stigmatized, but I think you've been quite successful uh, in, in both spaces in making it matter, right? Kind of highlighting and making salient topics so that people are forced to pay attention to it. I think I, I must uh, first caveat that I think um, COVID did a lot of help coming after a lot of the pushing of mental health in the August Chamber of Parliament. Um, so it was very vindicating, I think, for me, because while I was doing it um, in Parliament, um, there was certainly a sense that I get. Um, I was certainly probably called a troublemaker uh, in sort of really bringing up mental health at every opportunity I could, uh, regardless of the bill, that was being um, debated. Uh, so even if it's a payment services bill, right? Uh, dealing with FinTech and electronic transactions or um, or a, um, a bill that deals with employment uh, act. 
a bill that deals with um, the um, you know the the, the Singapore uh, police force setting up a home team, uh, science and technology team, right? Um, I would I would use every opportunity in Parliament um, to raise um, the issue of mental health and how policies really affect the mental well-being of every single person. And I would not even just say Singaporean, right? It's just every person who lives in Singapore because I firmly believe in the social determinants of health approach to mental well-being, right? It is not... Um, just from the clinical lens that we should be looking at mental well-being. So it gives me it gave me such an opportunity in Parliament to um to give voice to mental health across such a you know such a spread of ministries and such a spread of bills and therefore such a spread of policies to then actually hone um and drive home the fact that actually mental health is so uh, complex is one part of it, but second part is just how pervasive. Right, so how intersectional it is, and how cross ministry it is. So the way to do it to answer your question, how do I do it in Parliament? Would really just be, it was intellectually but very stimulating. I must um, completely admit to look at a bill that's filled with legalese, uh, and then to try to find an angle of mental health around it. Right, that was absolutely um, stimulating. I love it. Uh, I have to say. Um, so I think that's. That's what happened with just, you know, very sort of dogged um, determination, very disciplined, very regular, very consistent, um, not jumping from one to another. I mean, you know, I think until now, everyone calls me the mental health uh, MP um, because of that. Um, and I'm I'm lucky, right? Because the, the cause I feel so passionately for um, actually can be talked about in every bill, you know, it's not a narrow cost. So that's for parliament. Um, in, in some ways, it's the same with uh, workplace, although it's with a bit of a different angle. I mean, with the workplace, to be honest, Luke, I have a bit of advantage, right? Because I've spent, you know, 25 hours of my 30 years in the corporate sector in a C-suite position. I mean, throughout. So that's a long time, you know, a quarter of a century as a C-suite leader, um, you know, mostly, if not all of it, within the uh, the MNC sector. So it already, I guess, gave me such a such a credible voice, you know, um, of, of raising mental health uh, where, you know, folks within the business and employer space, even the employee space, uh, would know that I'm actually coming from lived experience, both as a leader, as an employer, as an employee, um, but also, you know, also as a, a human being who have gone through um, mental health challenges, which I've been very public about. So, so I think that has been um, a, a huge advantage. Um, but other than that, I have always felt like it is so important um, that to bring mental well-being into the business. Um, space, especially to the leaders, is not to demonize the leaders as the cause of all ills, you know, all mental ills, all anxiety, you know, it, it is the system, it is the culture, it is the, it is the, in fact, in the larger, um, if you zoom out really, it's probably since the industrial revolution, right? So, and I'm not saying that we absolve every leader of the responsibility to create an in inclusive culture, but I think it's also, um, you know, having that balance, same, same in parliament when I'm actually 
raising issues. It's never just trying to demonize one party um, because you and I know this, there's really never a silver bullet uh, or a magic pill to swallow or to be taken um, to make all mental health issues, whether in workplace or communities or schools, go away. Uh, and so I think it's more the, um, the languaging, um, the presentation, the communication um, of storytelling in a way that, you know, we are all in a way that is building empathy um, in trying to uh, make visible the other parts that are not always talked about. Um, and so in, in doing so, I have to say that it also feels like there's a, there's a form of um, it's, it's a form of education, not exactly psychoeducation that we talked about, right? But, but maybe at the larger, you know, systemic piece um, of that. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's why people are at least still listen, listening to me. I think that's what you have done brilliantly. I've, I've really admired and, and trying to learn from you. I'll just confess the girl crush here, uh, is that, you know, that you don't seem angry. And I think very often in uh, the lived experience, or oh, actually in academia, there's a lot of impatience as well, right? Because we're like, we're doing all the research and why aren't this? Um, and somehow when you, when I've seen you sort of, even in the report writing that we work on, um, or the way you speak in parliament or, or to uh, workplace leaders, you don't seem angry. Now, why is that? Because you're listening to so many voices on the ground too. You know, you, I know you see people's pain and how people are suffering. So what happens in between that you don't, I don't know, somehow not catch the anger, you know, and not not get te- not bring it into the conversation? Yeah, that, that's definitely um, indignation, right? That's definitely that sense of wanting to do more. As, as I hear more of these stories and I know that the deep, deep struggles in the ground, um, particularly, and you and I know this, particularly with the vulnerable uh, communities when it comes to mental health, that that definitely, you know, gets to me in a way that, you know, it's a combination of, wow, I've been through, I, I am a person with lived experience in mental health. And I thought I have gone through the worst when I was in that deepest abyss of despair. Um, but still, you know, there was that privilege of, uh, and luck, obviously, right, um, of having certain experiences and certain, you know, resources. Um, and actually, if you go all the way back, just being born to the right family in the right country, I don't know, right? So so I think that there's also a part of that philosophical aspect of me that allows me to not, and we talked about this in psychotherapy and coaching, right, that I, I am deeply, deeply um, present and holding and sharing the pain, you know, with the person who's telling me the struggle, right? But at the same time, there's also a part of me that is actually taking more of, you know, my role here is not to get into your story um, to the point that I lose, you know, um, lose sight and I lose the uh, breath you know, of the role I play, right? There's a role you play and there's a role I play. And so it's kind of um, being very aware, present, intentional and cognizant of what is my role. And I know my role. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm you know, it's just amazing for me to have gone through what I went through and to then know clearly now why I'm here, right? Why I was born 
into the family, the way I was born, the struggles I've gone through. Um, to make sense of all of that in itself is such a gift. I, I was just thinking today, while I was mm. walking through the supermarket, details you don't need to know about my life, but, you know, just thinking, I, <laughs> so, it's so easy to um, feel bad for privilege, right? So I'm, I'm thinking about things I could afford, you know, the bananas I buy, and also yeah. thinking about how prices have gone up and how so many people can't afford things that it's easy to just feel bad about it and then not use uh, or take advantage or use our, our privilege or the positions that we have been put in to mm-hmm. then do something good, you know, make something out of it rather than the, like the guilt I feel isn't going to benefit anyone. No, exactly. And I think I, I feel the same way as that, right? I have, um, I would say less guilt more than motivation, uh, more than being able to see as a problem solver, um, as an entrepreneur, can seeing that, hey, there is actually a possibility of you know creating a you know um, start with an experiment, but it could potentially be a solution for this gap in this part of the system, right? And then there's another one, another gap that you know possibly we can actually plug it as well with another type of a project or initiative, right? And the SG Mental Health Matters is one of those. Hash T Bar is another. Um, well leaders is another. And so the idea here is that um, it's channeling uh, or re-channeling, I, I guess, the, the sense of uh, injustice and um, the, the guilt, as you say, the indignation, yeah, into, into, um, into doing something that actually calls up my gifts. So I'm not trying to do what, you know, I can't actually do, I'm not very good at, um, but actually just kind of, you know, just showing up with what I'm good at. Um, and then, and then of course, have, getting help from others, right? And you're one of them, right? So, you know, because we can't, I, I just can't do um, all of it because there's only, you know, um, that gives that, that gives those gifts that I have, that I show up for. Um, and then being aware of where are my um, witnesses or, you know, the parts that maybe I also don't really, you know, like or can do very well for. So um, so to your point, I guess that's exactly it, right? With the privilege of um, whatever I've had, um, you know, in my life to date, but also actually the privilege of having gone through those challenges, those deep challenges and be able to come out of it. That I think is a privilege in itself. It's not just kind of the standard material privilege, privileges, right? Um, and so, you know, in some ways, I feel like, you know, sounds Superman, uh, no, Spider-Man-ish, but, you know, with privilege comes um, responsibility. <laughs> so you just so, compare yourself to a superhero? No, <laughs> no. In humility. Yeah, no, no, no. But, but no, no. I mean, it is, I think that is part of being a, being a, a human, right? Because, when you are given you know, all that you need materially, uh, that's one level of privilege. But I, I do think um, the privilege that comes from that self-awareness, from the resilience that you built, built up, from the, the support structures you now know uh, that gives you so much more courage and wings to go ahead. I feel like that privilege, I wish all of us can can actually be talking more about it, right? Because right now the the discussion of privilege is very um, linear. You know, it's all about the material privilege, the status, the class, the 
the elites and, and the education, right? Um, but I think there's also a privilege that comes with having actually um, navigated through um, you know, some of the worst challenges that life has thrown at you and you have come out of it um, better, not bitter. That's privilege. And that I feel like is even more um, calling me to just come forward, right? And hold space, you know, give voice um, and bring others along. So, yeah, yeah. So I think it's just rechanneling of the emotions, um, very intense emotions, but yeah, rechanneling them. I think that's a great sort of perspective on how to understand our experiences. And, you know, that like sometimes we look at these experiences that we come out of, but we look at them with shame, right? And we look at them as, I wish no one would ever know them, even though, you know, it actually reflects you know, resiliency and, and perseverance and persistence and reflects that we receive support that, you know, mm. somehow someone was there, maybe not necessarily the person we wanted, mm. but someone was there and our capacity to receive help from them even in our reluctance to receive help from them. It's a, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Like tell this beautiful story about true human resilience, not just what we think definitely, technically resilience, bouncing back from stress, which is actually a concept yeah. I really hate, you know, because how, how much can we bounce? Like we are not, we're not springs, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We absorb stress. Yeah. Um, I'm yeah. going to make a, a pivot to, you know, taking these experiences and then you became a nominated MP. Now you are talking to a Malaysian audience. Um, So maybe you could give some introduction, uh, a brief introduction to what that is and then also what led you to write your book. Which one? Um, The Fifty Shades of Love or the NMP? Well, both are great. But yeah, I'm, I'm very curious with the NMP, right? Because I think one thing that I'm wondering is, is did you ever experience uh, imposter syndrome? As you said, you're very used to the corporate world. And then yeah. there you were in parliament and, you know, people in parliament, they can stay there for a long time. You are mm-hmm. fresh off the boat, <laughs> and, uh, metaphorically, and then you join in. And, you know, how did you just start? You know, did, did you ever get gun shy? You know, did you ever feel, I'm not, I'm, I don't belong here? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, in fact, I've um, I shared this a little bit, especially when I'm invited to, um, you know, which is coming up. Uh, every time I'm invited to speak at the International Women's Day type um, forum, you know, I, I'm thankful for that. I was made uh, a C-suite, uh, a managing director uh, at a tender age of 26, 27, right? And this was in the 90s in a male-dominated um, industry. So everywhere I was, every time I was in a meeting in a boardroom, I would only be the only woman, Um, you know, and not just the only woman, but also probably the youngest one, right? So there was two levels of feeling like an imposter, right? Feeling like an imposter in a very male-dominated world, uh, feeling like an imposter in in a sort of, oh, you are only senior and good enough if you actually are of a certain age. Right. So these are these are very often the sort of um yeah, the sort of biases um in our society. And I I know it's across the, the globe, right? I mean, it's not just Singapore, it's in Malaysia, it's in you know, even the Western countries. Um and so I definitely did. And when you um 
when you actually hold that sort of imposter syndrome, but also at the same time, you know, as a quite a driven and disciplined individual. And, and then what you sort of do, what, which what I, what I kind of did uh, unconsciously until I, you know, many years later, I look back and did my, my own work on myself. I realized that it was, it, it probably explained a lot of why I used to drink so much. I used to smoke so much, <laughs> you know, because when you are kind of in that space, you don't have other like, uh, like you as role models. Right. So you kind of then, like put all the, it, it went inwards and then went into yeah. these unhealthy behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because you want to fit in you, it's part of your coping mechanism. Um, you know, you, you, and all of that. I mean, thankfully I drank well and I smoked well. So, you know, and I, I'm now completely not drinking and not smoking. So hopefully, you know, the, the body is now happier, but, but, you know, I think, I think from that experience, um, it also taught me once I got to be aware of it, one, once I got to be uh, able to unpack that, uh, which is why, you know, the work on ourselves, knowing ourselves is so important because if we don't, then we kind of keep repeating the pattern, right? Uh, because it's unconscious. But once you look back and you're like, why did I do that? You know, why did I drink the way I, I drank, you know, and all of that. Now I was obviously very successful because I was actually, um, I was adapting to what the system needed, uh, which explains a lot of my success, right, professionally. Um, but if you look back, was I truly um, the human that I'm here to be, given that your talk is, you know, being human, right? I think I, I definitely had a, uh, that disconnect, you know, which is why I kind of am, I know it sounds, you know, it sounds really, um, yeah, really kind of strange talking about this, but you know, looking back now, it's wonderful that 16 years ago, I had that massive collapse, right? Um, at the height of my professional success and career, um, you know, when when I actually had to uh, experience a really um, completely broken uh, heart from, you know, a broken marriage um, and, and then the, the business and everything else that followed as collateral damage. I think, I think that, that almost, um, you know, not almost, it definitely forced me factually, um, you know, to, to, to pause, to stop. I had no choice. It, it was forced on me. But I think that had really started so much of that, yeah, the deeper curiosity about who I am, you know, what made me the way I am, you know, um, why did the life I thought was actually um, working well for me did not, you know, so it's, it's, it's why I, I continue to think that it's painful. It's, um, it's sometimes for most of us, if not all of us traumatic. So there's a possibility of re-traumatizing yourself if you revisit some of these very deep challenges. And I know I still get, um, you know, I, I still get uh, triggered, uh, you know, when I, when I get a, you know, get some particularly male figures um, who say one thing and then do something else, you know, you can sense that because I, obviously I was, my ex-husband cheated on me. So those things, you kind of notice it, but I feel like there's still so much value in understanding what that adversity, you know, um, was, was uh, given to you for. Um, and I think from there, it just allows me to talk about and to be able to understand all this imposter syndrome I had, I, I had that brush with depression, 
you know, I felt completely um, uh, broken, displaced. Um, you you start to really um, understand what is your self-worth uh, and what is your self-esteem uh, attached to, right? Um, that you were so blind to. It's almost like, you know, I mean, I always say there's a fish cannot see water. Um, and so I was clearly taken out of the water when everything broke. And I, and I think knowing that I can, I'm, I can come back to the water, but now I will never not know that water is around me. Does that make sense? So, so then you are no longer, um, the biases and the patterns and your behaviors are no longer as invisible to you and unconscious to you. And I think that has helped me cope with, you know, the imposter syndrome that's still creeping, right? With new roles and new positions that I, I take on. Uh, I have to be honest and thankfully it's becoming less because I, I think I've become more okay with saying, okay, I'm going to just make a fool of myself or, okay, you know, they might not think, you know, I'm making sense um, and that's fine, you know, that that's very helpful, but it doesn't mean that all of this is gone, right? Because there's so many decades of building up those, um, yeah, those, um, those feelings that you have for yourself, the self-identifiers, right? It's like the difficult experiences ever since young almost like trained you to keep being in unfamiliar situations and then slowly, slowly getting, it's never pleasant, but you get better at handling it. Sure, for sure. And I think, um, you know, I love what Brene Brown said about this, right? That vulnerability is, the, is really the truest gauge of strength. You know, because I was trained and and sculpted and shaped so much by a very, you know, by being part of um, and around a masculine norms, right, for so long that um, I thought strength was just um, being stoic. Strength was, I mean, I still I still like those traits, right, being disciplined and driven and and uh, and, and all of that, um, but. But yeah, I think vulnerability, it's so human because, you know, for me now, I feel like, you know, when we avoid vulnerability, we are avoid being human, right? Because there is just no way we would go through life with all the richness and the variety of experiences that, that we never have to struggle with rumble that we don't have to rumble that we don't have to think oh I'm not actually really good at it or oh I'm feeling like you know I'm not gonna be quite up to it uh, we are dealing with that all the time so it's very human but we hide it we spend all our life and every moment almost trying to hide that uh, and I don't think vulnerability um, as just not you know no boundaries I think you know again vulnerability without boundaries is, is just being soppy but <laughs> But I think vulnerability meaning that, you know, if we keep arming ourselves, right, every time we go emotionally arming ourselves, I think, um, you know, what happens is not that other people don't know us um, truly, but I think what I've experienced is that we don't know ourselves truly. Yeah, so this is something I've struggled with, right? Because so both you and I have a quite public facing and, and then especially as a psychologist, exclusively in mental health, um, I know that it's important to be vulnerable, but at the same time, you don't want to be naked. You know, so I, I think I prefer to kind of think of it as authenticity because there's still a level of protection. You know, when you're vulnerable, you just feel like you rolled over and allow everyone to stab you, which is not 
good. You know, you you do no, no. need some protection. You need your a little space. You need a part of you that's only for you, only seen by a close circle of friends or family. Yes. That is safe place. Um, but there's there's this authenticity I think you bring, which is surprising in Singapore. You know, in Singapore, it's important that you look oh, be is I just how did you be authentic in Parliament? You know, like. Mm. How was it received? You know, was it difficult? What I I heard it um, secondhand uh, that two um, political office holders apparently, um, you know, with a smile. So I, I'm not sure whether it was in jest or was serious. Um, actually, used the word weird on me, right? Uh, when I was still in parliament, right? And and to your point, yeah, I guess the way I was, you know. Um, my maiden speech, I stood up, I went to the rostrum, and then I requested the speaker to give me a couple of minutes to invite the entire chamber to take three deep breaths of doing mindfulness practice, right? Mm. Uh, and, and, and in front of me was just the prime minister, deputy prime ministers flanking him, and then the whole front bench, the whole row of front benches. And then everyone was there because I just happened to be in a slot where everyone seems to you know, be in the chamber. And um and and I did it because I was so called to it. It wasn't as if I didn't I wasn't a ball of of nerves, um, Sook, because I wasn't even sure whether I was breaking any rules. Given that there's just so many rules that you don't know about, and it was my maiden speech, and I'm such a rookie. But I was just there was such a strong pull to say I needed to do this right because you know what we do in Parliament affects every person on the street, right? So we need to be so present. Uh, we need to be completely. Uh, clear-minded, you know, um, and more importantly, like you said, to be authentic and human, right? Because otherwise, how would we have the, you know, the the resonance and the empathy? And so it was, it was a bit of a silence after the breathing thing. Uh, but thankfully, thankfully, the Prime Minister himself, who's a dedicated meditation practitioner, um, actually started uh, thumping the armrest, right? Which is which is like a, a applause in Parliament. Yeah, perfect, right. yeah. so... I guess because of all of that, um, you know, we it's it's understandable, you know, uh, when uh, they use that as an adjective for me. Um, but I also think that it also sometimes when I think about it, all those years um, in the corporate sector is what prepared me to do what I needed to do in Parliament, right? Because you, you could say that your skin has grown thicker. You could say that um, what I went through in terms of the colossal collapse um, made me very clear-minded in why I was there, right? Um, uh, how do I continue to be, um, you know, myself was keep reminding myself that it's not my voice that I'm actually here to give. It's actually all the other voices who cannot be heard, who can't be heard, who won't be heard. Uh, in chamber that my voice is actually giving, um, you know, them that voice for. Uh, I know it sounds, but it genuinely was what I was always remembering, right? Sitting with my butt on this chair and very uncomfortable chair, by the way, in, in parliament um, and standing up, right? Because it's everyone is, you know, just staring at you and and all of that. You are always a little bit of a nerve. You know, there's always a bit of nerves because the camera is on you, they're panning and, and all of that, right? Everyone is staring at you. So I think it kind of is just going back to the reason why I was put there. And, and whether it's 
completely delusional on my part, right? Um, to think that way, it certainly helps me to be more grounded, right? I must also say that when you are sort of rubbing shoulders with, you know, the powers that be and, and you know, being able to be given a platform and a voice in the highest hall of the land, it's very easy, right, to get swept away. Uh, and so I probably was the most disciplined that I've ever been uh, in those times when I was in parliament in my practice. Uh, and when I mean practice, I mean meditation, non-negotiable, yoga, non-negotiable, journaling, non-negotiable, right? To make sure you're grounded, like super grounded. Super grounded, super way more than a, a normal um, time in my life, right? Because um, this is this is real. And, and I think that's why, that's what calls me so much to the work at Well Leaders, right? Because, you know, the CEOs that, you know, we pull together, the whole idea is to get them to truly understand what's going on on the ground. Uh, everyone's a good person. I mean, fundamentally, we all want to be able to do good. Um, but a lot of times it's just, you know, the system, the circle, the circuit that you're part of could just take you so far away sometimes, right, from the ground, um, from the lived experiences, the lived realities that, that, you think you're really doing good, but there's a disconnect. And so that disconnect um, was in some ways what I feel has also been an important part of my role, being conduit between policies and ground. And SG Mental Health Matters is a really um, you know, good example of what we're trying to do there, right? Uh, where we actually make, make sure that that's a coming together. Otherwise, it's a, always a complete face-off. Then you're just talking over each other, talking at each other, but never talking with each other. And then where would the change come about? You know, and then we wonder how come 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and everything is still the same. Yeah. So I, I feel like that's that's a that's a big part of the grounding. Uh, actually, just a side trivia, right? So even in holidays, I forced myself to go stay in hostels, <laughs> youth hostels around, right? When I was in Mongolia, um, I stayed in a youth hostel uh, in Ulaanbaatar, and then I went out on a, you know, a Russian van to the Gobi Desert with a bunch of young people who are, you know, more than half my age. <laughs> but every single one. But of you them, look so young. It's, thank you. You're, you're like taking, this is like Dorian Gray. You know, there's a painting of you somewhere. That's <laughs> like enduring the stress. You know, all the smoking, the drinking, that picture is just aging. Are you maintain? Are you remain young? Maybe that's what. That's what. You I know, do. I think. Yeah, the work that you put in and you talked about um, before on the self-work, right, and knowing yourself and uh, your vulnerabilities and can help you be or continue being, you know, in spaces that maybe aren't so friendly uh, to you. And this is, this is a, a lot of prejudice for you to conform to certain things. Just had a thought of this, you know, I think change happens, uh, you know, weird people create change. Because it's always what we, we weird is is that is that it's not like everything else. Yeah. And if it's like everything else, then there wouldn't be any change. So weird is any force that looks different, you know. Yeah. And yeah. and so it was just I, no, totally. I think if all of us allowed ourselves to be, we yeah. would actually all be weird. I'm still with you there, and I think we we also need to understand um, at some level, you know, I do feel that. 
you know, the way we define mental health and mental well-being to a large extent is also, also defined by, you know, how an individual behaves according to social norms. And so if you're not, you know, uh, oh, hence the problem, you know, the whole challenge with st uh, stigma and taboo and all of that, right? But that's also, you know, I think it was Carl Jung. I'm not sure whether it's Carl. I'm, I'm sure it's Carl Jung. This doesn't sound like anyone else to say something like that. I think it was Carl Jung who said that, you know, we should not just see that that the sanity, the role and responsibility of sanity sits with an individual when actually it could be the society that's actually that has actually lost its uh, sanity <laughs> that has rendered um you know, uh, some individuals struggling um, with being part of such a society. And so I do think, um, to your point, that, you know, this is what is so important for us to never forget that, you know, we are first and foremost human before every other label, layer, filter of identity, right? It is, it is why, because... You know, I get asked so often, so often, especially in, um, you know, in, in receptions and conferences, you know, um, what do you do? I said, well, yeah, you know, here and there, this and that. And then they're like, no, no but, but what's your full-time job? Because, you know, our social norm is that you must have a full-time job. What do you mean you don't have a full-time job? And so then I started um, maybe five, six years back to just say that my full-time job is being a human being. Everything else is part-time. So now I actually used it as my seven-word biography, full-time human being, part-time everything else, you know, because I feel like this is what we have come to where I can't even be accepted if I don't have a full-time job that is a typical one <laughs> and that people are like, no, 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 I know what you mean. You do this, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we do all this kind of hobby project. But what's your full-time job? Trying, people are trying to understand, right? It's always exactly. a part, right? Like, but where do you fit in into our boxes? Exactly. Our schemas, exactly. our, our categories that we have. So actually, if I could retitle your book, you know, the nominated member of parliament scheme, are weird voices still necessary in parliament? <laughs> <laughs> and like then the answer would be yes, because we, it's not a necessary but unelected, but about voices that are different and voices who would speak uh, the diversity of the people, you know, voices who will bring into attention topics that that I guess people who are always in the system they're not thinking about or they're not experiencing uh, these. Um, and also because of partisanship, right? So Malaysia, like Singapore, is um, also um, part of the Westminster system that has been around for two hundred years, uh, and so it's a majoritarian democracy, right? So it's first past the post, um, which also means that elected MPs or actually, you know, MPs in general, when they're campaigning, they would have to stay with majority issues because they are going for majority votes, right? If you want to be getting in to parliament uh, and be elected. And I think that's why there is certainly some merit, which is what I argue in the last chapter of this book, are elected MPs enough, right? So I flip, I turn the subtext of the title of the book around to say that are elected MPs enough? And that really, it's really not just the content, it's the context too, right? I mean, on its own, you would say, yeah, elected MPs should be enough because they are elected by the people. 
But if if you talk about the system flaws and every system, no matter how long it's been used, will have flaws. And one of the flaws, a very glaring flaw of majoritarian democracy, the likes of Malaysians and Singapore's, is that, you know, you would always have um, politicians, you know, focusing um, on majority interests, right? Um, And so that's why, you know, that is merit. Um, for voices, weird, um, but more importantly, um, ones that are really looking out for the minority interest that could even potentially be politically costly, right? Um, but if they are not represented, then how can a parliament be truly representative of um, the society of the people, right? Because actually, in parliament, it should be an exact reflection of the people out you know, outside of Parliament House, um, all around. But it's usually not because of this sort of, you know, um, fundamental flaw. And that's why the other system that is also being used in quite a lot of countries, um, the ones who are uh, non-Westminster, it's called the proportional uh, representation system. Uh, And that means that, you know, there will always be, I mean, every group within the population will be represented. But, I mean, that calls up different challenges as well, like which group gets represented. And it gets messy because so many groups now have intersectionalities too, right? So I think, um, yeah, I think with that in mind was why I thought um, it was important to contribute to a book like this, which is the first ever book written on this um, uniquely Singapore um, uh, innovation, you know, where we are, we're trying to, you know, plug the gap a little bit you know, not always, you know, the case because it's still a supermajority parliament. But I guess it's not so much in necessarily um, getting more votes in, but to raise awareness for all the other issues that won't be talked about by elected MPs because they will focus only on majority issues. And I think there is value in that. Yeah, right. So Singapore contributes many things, not just the habit of putting tissue paper to book and chop your seats. <laughs> they also, I think, I think it's, it's such a, it's such a great idea, and I, I think every system does it differently. Mm. And of course, as you said, every system is flawed. But the importance, you know, the really the intention of the importance of bringing in people who don't have a stake in the game, you know, who can be sort of maybe more objective, more neutral, um, yeah. can really sort of advocate. I think there is some personal cost. And so to be a strong NMP, you know, to be a strong nominated MP, you do need to do a lot of self-work because you're yes. taking a position of advocacy and of speaking up uh, for the community. I, this has been, uh, I really enjoyed this conversation and time has passed so quickly. And I want to bring it back to you uh, just for a final uh, question and um, for our listeners. You know, something that struck me was, you know, as I saw 16 years ago, you had that big break. And I think that big break is what a lot of people are dreading. You know, we don't want to get. Is there something you could tell our listeners? What would you want them to know in order to come to where you are that, you know, you, you can pick things that are meaningful, that you can... Yes, even if you don't want to hold a full-time job, or even if you do hold a full-time job, but do it by being yourself. You know, having that, finding your authenticity, uh, finding a way to to be just existing, you know, to being in the world. 
to be resilient. So is there anything that you would you would want our listeners to know? What saved me so I can share this uh, actually what just happened just behind me um, to my left. So as I was actually in the in the sort of the deep dark place lying on the floor actually because um, I had no money to to furnish it then when I moved into this flat. Uh, I went to a dark place, um, dark enough to even contemplate the distance between my 18th floor apartment uh, and the ground. What actually was a safety catch for me? And I hope this is useful um, because in times of distress and, and crisis, um, you know, it, it, it's actually what um, do we remember as a, as a cue or, you know, as a reminder that would most help us. So my safety catch, and until today, I guess, uh, every time I hit something challenging, um, our mind tends to focus and go into overdrive and therefore overwhelmingness. Um, because we keep thinking about what we have lost, what we have, what we are no more, which I remember that broken tip recorder going, right, which got me, you know, further and further down into the downward spiral. Um, the safety catch was when I asked myself this question, what do I still have? And I feel like that's, that that was a important, um, yeah, now it's become, you know, a really important, I mean, in other words, it's gratitude, but I, I don't want to just say gratitude because it's such a broad, abstract concept. I literally wanted to name, <laughs> you know, what do I still have? Uh, and I think I think when we ask ourselves that question, particularly in a time where it seems like everything is against us, everything that we have has been taken away from us, when we ask ourselves that question, inevitably, it will be about some of the most important things about being human that you still have, right? Uh, for me, obviously, was... The relationships, right? Family, uh, love, uh, loved ones, you know, the support, um, my best friends uh, and, and stuff like that, right? So, so that would always keep us at that level, even if it's very subterranean, when you are all broken, uh, but that exactly is the level that we should access. You know, so whether it's at work, you know, you hold down, like you say a full-time job and you're feeling really, you know, just being um, pulled in every direction, um, yeah, it helps so much, you know, to come back to that question, what do I still have? And from there, I, I, I've always found it to be helpful to, to realign my perspectives, right? To realign, um, to bring me to back to being human and therefore just, you know, sort of focus on what truly matters and so no, don't sweat off the small stuff or don't let other people get under my skin, you know, and stuff like that. So that's, that's so kind of it saved me because it was only an ideation. But when that question came, I think it definitely safety catch me, safety caught me in not going further, you know? And I, yeah, I feel like that's, that's a precious one. Thank you. Yeah. Oh thank you for sharing. It really reminds me of, uh, you know, intentional peer support instead of asking, you know, what's wrong in our life is to say, well, what do we have and where do we want to head toward, you know, rather than focusing on only on the problems. So thank you so much for sharing what kept you going. Yeah. And also it, it allows you to come from a place of um, have rather than come from a place of lack, right. To try to get out of it. It doesn't mean that the, the next moment I was all fine and I was up and about singing and dancing. Um, like I said, it saved me from going into that, you know, nonstop of a downward spiral, slippery slope. But then, you know, then you come from that place of have, and then it's building, right? It's it's building up. 
Um, right. Instead I, of spiraling down, you spiral upwards. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you're starting from a place of, hey, support, right? That support you have. You have. This is, this is what you have, you know? And I think, I think psychologically, we are also, well, not psychologically, the language itself is generated, right? You are actually sort of rewiring your, your, your neural pathways to say, hey, no, no, you're standing on something solid. You're not drowning. You know what I mean? Like, that would be the metaphor that I, well, actually I felt that because I, I felt like I was really drowning. So that felt like a little bit of a boy that I could come back up. And stand on. I mean, it's still something solid, right? Ground. It was something solid, solid ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it was still lightly out in the sea, lah. But you know, you're not, you know. So it's slowly coming up, right? But at least you hold that, and then it starts to give you a sense of stability and support. The other I must share what we often also don't think about, and this is very important, especially because of the cancel culture these days. It's just everywhere. I mean, you will feel cancelled when when things don't go your way, and you know people started uh, start to sort of move away from you, which obviously happened with me then as well. But I remember vividly, so that I felt maybe I should say a twisted sense of relief because it was a weird and strange sense of relief. Maybe because oh, now I can just let everyone know. Okay, don't think I'm so well put together. Don't think that. Nothing will go wrong. Don't think that I'm perfect. You know, don't think I'm exceptional. And then you feel this strange sense of relief, which I must say I allowed myself to feel because that's also another way of healing, right? You're just like all this time you are trying to tiptoeing, not wanting to be found out, not wanting to be, you know, uh, known to be, oh, you're not all strong and all the time. And then because now it's so open, right? It's such epic collapse you're like i'm not saying that you know you want to do it you know all no, the time you don't like it's not a great place to be but then it could be a place where you didn't need to be that person right like you could it's a bit of a rest kind of come, right and then come more from this is who i am and then start recovering from that place of authenticity rather than a place from uh, you know just imitation or trying to be someone else and shame, you just, you know, you it's so easy to feel shame in this um, right. current um, world that we live in, right? Uh, and and so I think that allows me a little bit of a breather and a relief um, from shame, from despair, you know? Yeah, I definitely felt that. It was very strange, but I felt that. So two things for our listeners would be, one, you know, thinking about what you do have, coming from a place of richness, rather than poverty and the mm. second one is also which is i know you said it twisted but it's really is a reframing of things you know it's kind of yeah. almost seeing what are there any benefits to my current situation and i don't need to pretend it's one one huge benefit and that i can just be and, and yeah. come to um, come to a place of authenticity so thank you very much Anthea, for this chat Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Being Human. We'll be hosting guests on a regular basis, so be sure to tune in for some more insights on how we can understand ourselves better and learn to live a life on our own terms and one that's meaningful to us. My name is Dr. Chua Sukning, and I look forward to sharing some more valuable insights from the world of mental health with you very soon. 
Thank you for listening to the Being Human podcast. To find out more about Relate Malaysia's online therapy services, visit us at www.relate.com.my or email us at inquires at relate.com.my. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, remember, we are all more human than we are otherwise. Be kind to yourself and take care.